Now, the one thing you could say about Joe Biden is that he was always a gun grabber. There was never a moment where Joe Biden was going to be okay with you having a Second Amendment right. And Joe Biden would do anything, quite literally anything, to obfuscate. Quite literally anything and say anything to blur the lines between reality and not to ensure that the law-abiding citizen wasn't entitled to their law-abiding rights. Making claims that this will have no impingement on Second Amendment rights, but going about executive orders to go down exactly that road. To make the claim as he did just a few minutes ago. That what's happening in America is embarrassing. We're embarrassing ourselves in front of other countries. Is this what we're doing? And if so, is it really the Second Amendment? The ability to keep and bear arms, that's the issue? Or is it the cultural hellscape that we have put ourselves in and we do not have a single elected leader willing to stand up and say the problem is culture? Tony Katz, good to be with you. Tony Katz today. 833-GOT-TONY, 833-468-8669. That is the number. Facebook, Tony Katz Radio. Now, President Biden is still speaking. We're going to take it back to him. But, man, I got to break this down a little bit more because when he starts with, this is not going to impinge on your Second Amendment rights, uh, you might as well have just said to me, you know, this is for the children because anytime it's for the children, you're about to get screwed. Let's take it to President Biden. As a result, it's more lethal effectively turn it into a short-barreled rifle. That's what the alleged shooter in Boulder appears to have done. I want to be clear that these modifications to firearms that make them more lethal should be subject to the National Firearms Act. The National Firearms Act requires that a potential owner pay $200 fee and submit their name and other identifying information to the Justice Department. Just say they would if they went out and purchased a silencer for a gun. Fourthly, during my campaign for president, I wanted to make it easier for states to adopt extreme risk protection order laws. They're also called red flag laws, which everybody in this lawn knows, but many people listening do not know. These laws allow a police or family member to petition a court in their jurisdiction and say, I want you to temporarily remove from the following people any firearm they may possess because they're a danger and a crisis. They're presenting a danger to themselves and to others. And the court makes a ruling. To put this in perspective, more than half of all suicides, for example, involve the use of a firearm. But when a gun's not available, an attempt at suicide, the death rate drops precipitously. States that have red flag laws have seen and seen a reduction in the number of suicides in their states. Every single month, by the way, an average of 53 women are shot and killed by an intimate partner. I wrote the Violence Against Women Act. It's been a constant struggle to keep it moving. We know red flag laws can have significant effect in protecting women from domestic violence. And we know red flag laws can stop mass shooters before they can act out their violent plans. I'm proud, excuse the point of personal privilege we used to say in the Senate, I'm proud that the red flag law in my home state of Delaware was named after my son, Attorney General Bo Biden, our son, excuse me, Joe, who proposed that legislation back in 2013. I want to see a national red flag law 
and legislation to incentivize states to enact their own red flag laws. Today, I asked the Justice Department to publish a model red flag legislation so states can start crafting their own laws right now. Just like with background checks, the vast majority of the Americans support these ex extreme risk protection order laws. And it's time to put these laws on the books and protect even more people. The Attorney General will have more to say about this in a moment. Additionally, we recognize that cities across the country are experiencing historic spikes in homicides, as the law enforcement can tell you. The violence is hitting black and brown communities the hardest. Homicide is the leading cause of death of black boys and men ages 15 to 34. The leading cause of death. But there are proven strategies that reduce gun violence in urban communities. And there are programs that have demonstrated they can reduce homicides by up to 60% in urban communities. But many of these have been badly underfunded or not funded at all of late. Gun violence in America, for those of you who think of this from an economic standpoint listening to me, estimated to cost the nation $280 billion, let me say it again, $280 billion a year. You say, how could that be, Joe? Hospital bills, physical therapy, trauma counseling, legal fees, prison costs, and the loss of productivity. And I don't doubt any of not it. Not to mention a psychological... I don't doubt that it's $280 billion. I'm not so sure you should doubt it either. I think you could find probably different studies that offer different economic models. But if you now want to say that, quote-unquote, gun violence... You notice they always say gun violence. They never say car violence. They never say alcohol violence. They never say, uh, you know, it, it, domestic violence has its own category. Gun violence, never knife violence, never just physical brutality violence. What do you call the violence of two teenage girls carjacking a Pakistani man who drives for Uber Eats and then uh, killing him? That, that, that didn't even get, that doesn't get us something. Violence didn't even make the front pages for more than a day and a half. The problem is, is that he almost hits on it. If he wants to say that gun violence is destroying, quote unquote, black and brown communities. Why is that? You see, to answer that question might very well take leadership. It might take fortitude. It might take asking a question culturally. And you might learn that the argument is incorrect. This is my belief. This is my theory that the argument is incorrect. While there is an argument to be made that very often we see black kids solve their issues with a gun on the streets and we see white kids solve their issues with a gun at the school. While not all mass shootings are done by white people, it certainly falls in line with percentages of population. We can clearly make a, a, a take a look at data and say this does happen is there a cultural reason for these two things that scares people scares them to death because it means you might actually have to address race and culture and ask yourself what is one group doing over here and what is one group doing over there and why do these things happen even asking that question gets you called a racist you, you, you know how we view it so what what does it matter what they call you? We're trying to figure out a problem. 
And the first part of it is recognizing that the problem exists because the problem fundamentally exists. But what if the bigger issue is not a question of color of skin, but of dollar in pocket? It's a conversation indeed of poverty. Well, how does one address that? Notice I don't have the concrete answer. I do have a philosophy, a theory that regardless of whether these things are cultural or economic, the one thing they cannot do is be a burden upon my rights to the Second Amendment to the Constitution of the United States of America, nor yours. Because while these numbers may exist, the billions, no, I'm sorry, the millions of gun owners who have done nothing wrong and lead their lives, they matter. Not for Joe Biden and company, and that's the issue. Has there been any studies done? If Joe Biden wants to say that the cost related to gun violence is his words, $280 billion. As I said, I don't argue the number. How much has been saved because somebody else had a firearm and was able to protect their family or the ones they love? Or a church? Or name the place? How much has been saved because of a firearm? How dare you just bring us one bit of data? What do you think? We're new at this? This is our job, people. Yes, that was an Animal House reference, and I feel good about it. We're fully aware of what's going on. Let's talk about the amount of money saved. You want to tell me, Joe Biden, you dare go down the line of saying a firearm is used in a case of domestic violence? The very argument that you would put into the world that somehow women should not have the ability to be armed and trained is so insane, and never mind misogynistic, absolutely clinically insane that it is to be laughed at. And the people who bring it about seriously should never be elected to public office again. And the people who support them shouldn't be allowed to the family dinner. Oh, I'm sorry. Am I supposed to be civil? This is civility. Civility is not whether or not I disagree or not even not whether or not I, I, I raise my voice or poke fun. Civility is saying we have the right to a point of view and to speak it clearly. And I'm doing just that. I can't stop the president of the United States from having this garbage conversation. This one-sided, nonsensical, pseudo-intellectual conversation he's having on the Second Amendment. I I, I can't stop him, but I'm certainly not going to get stopped by anybody. Now, the one thing you'll notice he mentioned is red flag laws. I actually have changed my mind on red flag laws. I used to be in favor of them. I no longer am. Because when this conversation first started a couple of years ago, we saw states enact red flag laws, and then we saw law enforcement and others try to utilize red flag laws to take away the rights of Americans. I oppose such a thing. I do not oppose what is already feasible and doable, which is finding somebody uh, mentally unfit, having them adjudicated, meaning by a judge, my definition, I guess, mentally unfit. Do I believe that families have a responsibility when they know they have a family member who is mentally ill to ensure they don't bring harm to themselves or others to the best of their ability? I believe they do. Can you sue them for not doing so? I don't know about that. 
But of course, families should be able to have this ability. When you put it in the form of a red flag law, you are giving this this possibility of the removal of rights. Remember what we're talking about here. It is just a bigger subject than, oh, you're crazy. You shouldn't have a gun. That's not, that's not enough of an argument. That might be the argument you have at the kitchen table about Uncle Jerry. But it's not an argument that you could have in front of a judge. There's, this is a big, serious conversation. Apply it to anything else. Somebody shouldn't have the right against unlawful search and seizure. Somebody should lose their right to peacefully assemble. Where else? Do, someone should lose their right to a speedy trial. Uh, picture, picture other rights that, that you somehow could be so flip about. And you realize how heavy this subject is. The problem with red flag laws, and, and by the way, I live in Indiana, and Indiana has red flag laws. They exist. Is the abuse of them by people who have political aims as opposed to a real conversation about the safety of a society. There is never a moment where I don't support the Second Amendment. There is never a moment that I don't believe the Second Amendment is sacrosanct. Joe Biden has never had a moment where he doesn't think he knows better than you how to keep you safe and refuses to even mention all the times you have been kept safe by a firearm. He would rather you be a victim. And I'll quote Joe Biden. Let me say that again. Joe Biden would rather you be a victim. We have cultural things to look at and we have economic things to look at. But we have at the first a recognition of our Second Amendment rights, our right under God and nature's law to protect and defend ourselves and the ones we love. And nothing or no one can get in the way of that. I'm Tony Katz. So I have been thumbing through this book about civility, reading this book. It's the first book in a long time where I've taken the time to underline. I want to make sure I remember this. I want to write myself a little note in the margin. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. It's great to be with you guys. As always, Facebook, Tony Katz Radio. Go to TonyKatz.com. Get the podcast. Subscribe, like, follow, do all the things. Because this conversation about civility is, is, is so incredibly, incredibly important. And I know there's a great piece over at redstate.com by Kira Davis, who has filled in for me this week. And I, and I greatly appreciate it. I'm supposed to be on vacation. I'm supposed to be on vacation. I just wanted a week. But there were so many things happened. I'm like, you know what? I got to I'll, I'll just uh, Thursday. I got to I got to come and I got to I got to share. Right. I got to come and have a conversation. I miss you guys. I do. Ari doesn't miss you. Producer Ari's like, whatever. But me, I miss you terribly. Isn't that right, Ari? Sure is. Yeah, you just made. Yeah. Thank you for being a part of the bit. I really do appreciate that. Your, your peaches. But this idea of civility and this piece over at Red State by Kira Davis is about sometimes you, enough's enough. Enough's Enough was part of, of, a, of a piece of audio and from a video that you may have heard out of Canada. I believe Kira played it. 
where a pastor is throwing police officers out of the church. Listen. Please get out. Get out of this property. Immediately get out. Get out of this property immediately. Out. I don't want to hear anything. Out of this property immediately. I don't want to hear a word. Out. Out. Out of this property. Now, this pastor ends up calling the police fascists. Get your fascist selves out of here. I want you to understand that this is civility. I know it, it doesn't sound like it is. These officers were there to question uh, who was showing up and COVID and, and these kinds of things. I believe that was, that was the rationale. We've seen this at churches across the United States. Oh, you can't open. It's COVID. Oh, it's not safe. Listen to me carefully. Telling the cop to get the hell out is civil. The cop declaring that you're not allowed to open up a church is indecent. Do you see the difference? You do not have to sit there and take it and speak in humble tones. That's not what the conversation of civility is actually about. And in this case, certainly it is incivil to take away the rights of another person and the the right to peacefully assemble and the right to worship as one chooses remains even in a pandemic. And those people who don't believe that or don't want to have you follow through on that are worthless cowards. You don't owe them anything. Certainly they're not allowed to tell you how to live your life because that is not civility. You standing up for yourself, of course, is civil. No one threw a punch. If you want to make that argument, but of course you throw a police officer out who has no right to be there. And police officers understand that. They understand you have rights. Sometimes they're amazed you actually exercise them. We have a warped view of what we mean by civility. And civility must mean that different people can come to the public square and voice their views without fear of losing their life or their livelihood or their freedoms. That's how we're going to start defining things more and more. I'm Tony Katz. So now we understand that every conversation about infrastructure is a, is a conversation about spending. And when Democrats are discussing this infrastructure bill, it's very clear that they're not discussing infrastructure. They are discussing putting forth the changing of definitions and having a media apparatchik that gladly goes along with it to gaslight you into thinking that these things make sense. Tony Katz, it's so good to be with you. Tony Katz today. Facebook, Tony Katz Radio, Instagram, Parlor, Twitter at Tony Katz. Be sure to give a follow and a like and a, anything else you'd like. By the way, there's more coming out of this Joe Biden press conference that he had about uh, guns and he's going to take uni- you know, unilateral action on guns because the man is anti-Second Amendment. And so is Merrick Garland, the attorney general. Merrick Garland was the guy who Barack Obama said, hey, you're going to be on the Supreme Court. And uh, Mitch McConnell said, nah. And Barack Obama said, no, 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 I'm nominating to the Supreme Court. And Mitch McConnell said, nah. For however angry you ever want to get at Mitch McConnell, don't forget that he was standing strong before Donald Trump appeared on the scene. He said, nah, I'm not even going to call the vote. Damn. Damn. 
Don't deny that. Right? Be angry with things. I, I, I totally get that. But let's not, let's not just throw it all out, if, if you don't mind. So Merrick Garland is the attorney general. I've always opposed Merrick Garland. Why? Because he clearly opposes the Second Amendment. And I, I, I didn't catch this part, but I, I trust some of the people, uh, you know, uh, sharing this, that supposedly uh, Merrick Garland said that you could conceal an AR-15. I can actually hear people screaming. In their cars right now. You know what? I should have given a warning. I should have said hands on 10 and 2. Right? Someone's going to drive off the road. You can conceal an AR-15. And I was having this conversation with producer Ari during the break. He goes, well, if you give me a baggy coat. (laughs) It's just nonsense. It's nonsense. These people, when they go, they go after the Second Amendment, they don't know anything. These are the people who think AR stands for assault rifle. You know that AR doesn't stand for assault rifle, right? It's very important. It's not what it stands. I'm not even going to tell you. I'm going to make you look it up. I'm going to make you look it up. That way, you get to learn something. And I'll give you a hint. Armalite. That's it. I can't I give you no more hints. Armalite. You take uh, the, 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 the rest. And then, of course, there's the ever popular lies from people like President Biden. You know, you can go to a gun show, get whatever you want. No background check. And none of that is none of that is true. It's just embarrassing. Equally as embarrassing is this new conversation about infrastructure. This idea that infrastructure is more than just roads and bridges. Infrastructure is about, well, anything they want to spend money on. Paid leave is infrastructure. Child care is infrastructure. Caregiving is infrastructure. Now, that's not me saying it. That's Senator Kirsten Gillibrand of New York saying it. <coughs> she said that. Put that out on social media. That these things are infrastructure. If childcare is infrastructure, we have ourselves a problem. Because that means bridges aren't infrastructure. So how is somebody going to get to your house to provide the childcare if they can't get over the bridge? This is not an argument of whether or not child care is important, and that's how the political left tries to play it. And that's what makes this all so insidious. This is childlike, and I put forth to you that Senator Gillibrand is not bright. Because what she is engaged in clearly is not a conversation of the facts and not a conversation of what we all know to be infrastructure. It's a conversation about the idea that while we have an infrastructure bill, let's spend on all these other and call it infrastructure. This is not even a restructuring of, here's how we really have to think of the infrastructure of our country, the care for our children. That's the infrastructure. No, the infrastructure is the family. Now talk to me about all the things you're going to do for the family. Don't tell me about paid leave. That's about the employer. Don't tell me about child care. 
because that's also about the employer. And don't tell me about caregiving, because in all of these situations, there's a conversation of the family. And how do you simply allow the family to keep more of what they earn, lower the tax base? There. I just took care of paid leave, child care, and caregiving in one swoop. Lower the tax base, let people keep more of what they earn so they can be able to be of service to the children they have and the parents who are getting older. Their argument is let the state take care of this. Government will take care of this. Paid leave, government will require it. And then when the businesses can't keep up, the government will just pay for it. Child care, government will take care of that. Caregiving, government will take care of that. It's really a diseased mindset. When you want to take a look at the long-term growth of a society, and their answer to everything is more government and more state control, and more state control in the family itself, diminishing the role of the family and what it is family is supposed to do in all of these cases. We talk about this a lot. You take a look at the 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 push on uh, on transgender children, right? Oh, they're allowed to make their own decisions. No, they're not. No child is allowed to make their own decisions. I don't care who they are and I don't care what they think. Children are allowed, not allowed to make their own decisions. And anyone who says otherwise is guilty of child abuse. How's that? How's that? I, boom! I just dismissed those people. Ping, ping, ping. Just flick them out of the way like they're a ladybug crawling up your arm. That's a terrible way to treat ladybugs. Yes, but you know you do it. Okay, it's true. I flicked the ladybug before. Now I've got the ASCPA on me or whoever else is upset with the ladybugs who's going to yell at me. But that's the, those are the facts. Children have to be protected most often from themselves or more often than not from themselves. And if you let a child take hormones at the age of 12, you're guilty of child abuse. You should lose your children. Children are not in charge. Children have to be told no sometimes. And that's done out of love. You should love your children more. More people should love their children more. And the people who don't love their children push these kinds of ideas. And they push the idea of the state having more control over your children. That's what Senator Gillibrand is doing. That's what's happening. This infrastructure conversation has turned, of course, into a nonstop spending conversation. But what it really is fundamentally is a control conversation. And who do you think should have the control? You or, or, or Senator Gillibrand? That's, that's what I thought. Now the question is, what are you going to do about it? Of course, while all of this is happening, the trial is going on. In the case of George Floyd, uh, former officer Derek Chauvin. Uh, being charged uh, with with different degrees of, of murder, and while we have heard certainly some things from some defendants, I, I not defendants, some some witnesses that are pretty damning. There's a real question about how this case is going, and do prosecutors have this in the bag? We have uh, Andy McCarthy of National Review. You see him on Fox News, former uh, assistant attorney there in the Southern District of New York. He's going to be on with us to discuss what's going on, and we need to be prepared for what might come about before the rest of the nation hears it. That's coming up next. I'm Tony Katz. So we should be clear that as the Derek Chauvin trial continues and then it comes to a conclusion it will get violent in minneapolis tony katz tony katz today it's good to be with you 
Derek Chauvin, the former officer, the knee on the neck, the death of George Floyd, the protests and riots that took place in its wake. Now, I am one of the people who says quite clearly that Officer Chauvin was wrong. Without question, I say it. But I may not have every fact, and that's what you have a trial for. The people who believe guilty before, you know, pay no attention to the, even the thought of innocence, that don't believe in innocent until proven guilty. Well, those are the people that I pay no attention to at all, and neither should you, because that's a backwards view of, of society, of, of any society worth living in. But as this case is going on, and as this case is going down, you start to take a look at whether or not this prosecution has it all together. A conversation of whether or not the defense needs to be um, well, whether, whether the defense can, can, can withstand what's coming at them or it even has to worry about it because what's coming at them isn't strong enough. Right? This idea of I ate too many drugs. I, I ate too many drugs. Well, there's a part in, in one of the videos, right? One of the body cams where uh, George Floyd is speaking and they're asking people on the stand, does it sound to you like he said I ate too many drugs? Well, some are, are saying yes, including a former NYPD cop. And then when played again, is, what, what, what do you think you heard this time? And the other one is, I ate too many drugs. Right. So you or I shouldn't say no, I ain't do no drugs. So sometimes it sounds like I ate too many drugs and other times it sounds like I ain't do no drugs. Now, you might say, yeah, but what does that have to do with anything? You already have a guy who was resisting arrest. Now, one of the things that cannot be denied if you watch the full video is that George Floyd resisted arrest getting out of his car and would not sit in the back of a police car. He would not do it. They tried and tried and tried and tried and tried. Now, I still argue that does not give you a reason to have a knee on someone's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds or whether they recalculate it was nine minutes and something else. I don't think that gives them the, 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 the right. But if you have somebody who's resisting arrest, somebody who you think they said they were, they claim they were eating drugs. What is the headspace now of those officers? What else is happening? Again, I say to you as the outsider looking in, not a lawyer, not there. My view that uh, officer Chauvin is in the wrong. Chauvin is in the, he's in the wrong. But we're not talking about my view. We're not even talking about your view. We're certainly not talking about the view of the woke folk. We, you don't have to pay any attention to them whatsoever. We're talking about the view of the law and the view of this jury. Can the defense say, you see, the, you, you, the, the officer, look what's all that's going on. The officer has to put all this together and had to use their, their best judgment. This was the best judgment. You know, Officer Chauvin has had, what was it, thousands of hours of training? How many hours of training 
um, did he have? I, I, I came across that the other day. Maybe it was hundreds of hours a day, not uh, uh, thousands of hours of training. So people are going to say he took all this training. So, so what was, what, what's the issue? He did, all, he did everything he was supposed to do within the training. Right? This is all the things the defense is going to get to. Now, the prosecution, you would think, has this cut and dry case in front of them. Here's the video. This man is dead. There he is. Now, book him, Dano. But is it possible that they don't actually have enough of a case to be able to get conviction? Can the defense say, whoa, 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 he was trained in this. Whoa, 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 he was trained in that. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Listen to what was said here. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Remember, you need uh, beyond a, a reasonable doubt. That's, that's what you need. Now, one of the witnesses said that the use of force was uh, ex- excessive. Right? Somebody who's uh, uh, a, a, a use of force expert from the state, Jody Steiger, who admits he's being paid $13,000 for his testimony, which could certainly influence a jury, making the argument that the use of force there was, was uh, too much. I bring all this up in all these places just to start putting in your ear the idea that maybe not necessarily what we see, not necessarily how we may feel about it, not necessarily the idea that we think it's, it's obvious that what Officer Chauvin did was wrong. But within a court of law, not to our passions, but to the law. Maybe the prosecution doesn't have the case they think they have. And maybe the defense can create just enough levels of confusion to make it difficult on a jury to say beyond a reasonable doubt. Now, this is one of the reasons the prosecution wanted to make sure they had every bullet in their bandolier and wanted to have the third-degree murder charge, even though it doesn't really apply in this case, but it got used against another officer a few years back, so that's how they were able to fight to make sure that they could have that charge. I disagree with the ability of the charge in this case, but I agree that they had the right to ask for it because they had precedent to do so. And someone could argue, well, just because there's precedent, you, you got you to gotta change bad, bad rulings. I'll leave that again to the legal experts. But get ready for the idea that maybe this doesn't go down the way we all think it should go down. Maybe, just maybe, this doesn't bring the result that people are expecting. Now, that will not matter to Minneapolis because Minneapolis is going to burn regardless and not because I want it to, but because it's but because it's already, you know, starting to happen. You're already seeing uh, things happen. You're already seeing violence take place. This case is actually getting less coverage than I thought it would. But I don't think it's going as well for the prosecution as they think. I'm not saying that the defense is doing a great job. I'm just saying that if you want to create 
confusion, you've got a little bit of that. And we should be a step ahead of what may happen. This is Tony Katz today.